This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Book of Romans. Now today's text is from Romans chapter 11 on the future of the Jewish people, a passage so potentially controversial that our senior pastor has very wisely left the country and left me here without supervision. Um, and I, but I doubt, as you are coming up the hill this afternoon on the number 88 bus, that what your heart was really longing for this morning was to hear about the future of the Jewish people. Well, that might not be our felt need, but it is a subject very close to the heart of our God. And as I was, uh, this afternoon, as I was soaking in these wonderful promises in the book of Isaiah about how God is going to restore the fortunes of Zion, I felt my cheeks wet with tears. And I'm not by any means an emotional person, but what I was experiencing, and I hope we all experience this afternoon, is just a measure of the great love that God bears toward the Jewish people for the sake of their fathers and the wondrous and strange plan that God has for their full restoration. But first, a little background to our chapter. Probably the very first reference to Jesus Christ outside of the Bible is from the Roman historian Suetonius. And in his uh, history, he records that in the year AD 69, the Roman emperor Claudius he says, expelled from Rome the Jews who were constantly making disturbances at the instigation of someone named Crestus, Crestus with an E. And many, perhaps most historians believe that this is actually a kind of a garbled reference to Christos and that what Suetonius was talking about were disturbances in the synagogues at this time based on whether the Jews should accept or reject Jesus as the promised Christ, the promised Messiah for whom Israel was waiting. But whatever the reason, it meant that Rome's 50,000 Jews were kicked out of the city, including, Acts 18 mentions, incidentally, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. Now just stop and imagine the effect this banishment would have had upon the Roman church. Suddenly, the most mature Christians in your midst, the ones who know their Bibles best, the ones who are on the leadership team, they have to pack their bags. And the next Sunday morning, half the pews are empty. And the church is now composed entirely of Gentiles. Partly discipled converts, barely out of paganism. But somehow, they, by the help of the Spirit, they survive this catastrophe. And new leaders emerge, and the empty pews begin to fill up again, and the church, which probably was Christianity's first entirely Gentile community, starts to lose its Jewish roots. Then, in the year 54, the emperor Claudius dies, and with his death, this edict is annulled, and the Jewish Christians begin to return home. But things have changed over the last five years. And their home church no longer quite feels like their home church. Things have changed. And the young Gentile converts who once looked up to them now seem a little distant, a little aloof, looking down on their Jewish brothers and sisters. And it doesn't take much imagination or genius 
to imagine the undercurrent of tension this situation would have created in the community. And it would certainly explain some of Paul's remarks in his letter to the Church of Rome. And we can confidently date Paul's letter to the winter or spring of somewhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 57. So one to three years after the return of the banished Jews. So Paul is addressing kind of an unusual situation in this letter. See, he was often forced to address the issue of Jewish-Gentile relations. And this is pretty much the dominant theological topic of Paul's entire missionary theology. But in every other letter, in every other church, the problem was the opposite. It was Jews lording it over the Gentiles. And here the situation's reversed. It's the Gentiles who are acting superior because they believe, hey, God's favor has moved on to them. The Jews are ancient history, rapidly receding into the past. So Romans 11 is all about God's plan for the Jews. And if this bores us, then maybe we have fallen into that same trap of Gentile complacency and superiority. Perhaps we have forgotten the church's rich Old Testament roots, forgotten that we are worshiping a Jewish Messiah foretold by Jewish prophets and preached by Jewish apostles. And our chapter this afternoon opens up to us God's strange but incredibly merciful purposes in human history. Paul means for us to be humbled, to be amazed, to be encouraged, and most of all, as Pastor David will share with us next week, to bow down in awe-filled worship at God's glorious and mysterious grace. Now, we're not going to try to read all 32 verses in one gulp, but we're going to walk through it one section at a time, beginning with the first six verses. So if you open your Bible to Romans 11, you'll also see it on the screen above you here. Romans 11, the first six verses. I ask then, Paul writes, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Was it true, Paul asks, that God, weary of hundreds of years of Jewish rebellion and unbelief, was it true that God would at last just chuck the Jews into the dustbin of history and start over with the Gentiles? By no means, Paul asserts immediately, the Lord God will never waver from his sovereign purpose. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Paul writes. He will never swerve from his commitment to Israel. Why? Because it was always based on God's election of them, never upon their behavior. Grievous as they are, human sin and human unbelief, thank God, are still not strong enough to thwart God's good and sovereign purpose. And Paul himself is exhibit A. He is a living demonstration that there is at least one Jew whom God has not rejected. And Paul, 
is certainly a miraculous demonstration of God's commitment to Israel. Because if there ever was a Jew who was less likely to bow the knee to Jesus as the Messiah, it was Paul, who when persecuting believers, was persecuting Jesus himself. And the remnant is much larger than Paul. And he reminds us of the story of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah, who after this triumph over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, must now flee, run for his life from the wrath of Queen Jezebel. And in his despair, coming down from this high, Elijah convinces himself that he's the only one left. That even after this public defeat of the false Canaanite storm god, the people of Israel are still insistent on worshiping idols. And perhaps we feel the same way sometimes in our families or at our work, that we're the only ones left, that God's purposes have narrowed down to this tiny point. But Elijah has severely undercounted, and God rebukes him and tells him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And even in widespread national apostasy, God has preserved a faithful remnant for himself. And no matter how low Israel's state in the coming centuries, even in desolation and in exile, the flame would flicker but never go out completely. And the prophets describe the remnant of Israel as nothing more than a hut in a cucumber field or a lonely flagpole on a hill. But from that tiny, humble remnant, God promises, he will once again build up and restore his people. And Paul sees this remnant in his own time, a remnant chosen by grace, not by works. And what Paul is at pains to emphasize here and throughout the chapter is that mercy is always God's sovereign prerogative. God is free to bestow grace whenever and on whomever he pleases. We can never twist God's arm and manipulate him into showing mercy to us. As Paul said in chapter 9, quoting God's word in Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is good news. And for grace to be grace, it must be God's free gift, not the wages we've earned. And it's this theme of God's gracious freedom that allows Paul to have great hope for the Jewish people. And God's mercy should be our own hope when we pray and plead with God for those in whom we are tempted to despair. So, there is, there is at least a chosen remnant. But, what about unbelieving Israel? What about the great majority of the nation? What is God doing with them? Let's move on to verses 7 to 10. What then, Paul asks, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 
When God hardens someone in the Bible, most famously, the case of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, he's giving them up to their rebellion and putting them into a state of complete spiritual insensitivity. Spiritually speaking, they've been turned to stone, petrified, now unable to respond or even to perceive the mighty acts of God. It's a frightening divine judgment. One, we should all be afraid of inviting by hardening our own hearts towards God. And now while Israel's responsibility is clearly implied, Paul's emphasis is on the fact that God is the one who has hardened them, and God is the one who has given them this spirit of stupor. But this gives him hope, and here's why. Behind Israel's unbelief is the divine hand. There's some divine purpose behind this unusual resistance to Christ from the Jewish nation. What might that be? Let's read on. Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. Now, Israel may have stumbled over Christ, the stumbling block, but she has not fallen out of God's hands into irretrievable ruin. Just the opposite. God is actually directing this whole situation for the ultimate blessing of Jew and Gentile, for the reconciliation of the world. And first of all, the Jewish rejection of the Messiah actually opened up the door for the salvation of the Gentiles. And this is a common pattern in the book of Acts over and over again. In chapter 13, for example, Luke tells us what happened in Pisidian Antioch. And he writes, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, if you cast your mind back to the book of Genesis and God's call of Abraham, and the Jewish nation, the reason God called them was to be a blessing to the nations, to declare God's glory to the Gentiles. And since they fail to fulfill their commission through obedience, God declares very well, you are going to fulfill your commission through your disobedience because my word will not fail. But this is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the line, Paul stresses. God still has redemptive purposes for the nation of Israel. In fact, 
one reason that God is bringing us Gentiles into the kingdom is to stir up the Jews to jealousy. Wait a second. These Gentiles are worshiping our God. They're reading our Old Testament. They're singing our Psalms. How can we let them enjoy our inheritance without us? Now, we Canadians are very proud of the fact that we invented ice hockey. And yes, we're glad the Russians and the Czechs and the Swedes love it too, and we sincerely wish them much enjoyment with their silver and bronze medals. But that Olympic gold belongs to us by divine right. And should the national team slink home with a silver medal, the entire nation burns in shame. Honestly, the only thing more humiliating is losing to the Americans. (laughs) Where hockey ranks down there somewhere between mini golf and dodgeball. Okay, this is our sport. And it's... This is the spirit of jealousy that the evangelization of the Gentiles is meant to provoke. And if you are a Gentile, as I suppose almost all of us are, you might be surprised to learn that one reason, one reason that God saved you was to provoke his Jewish people towards salvation. And really, it's only right that we Gentiles get to play a role in Israel's restoration since we have benefited so much by their rejection. So there's this mutuality here. The Jews are called to bless the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are called to bless the Jews. That the whole people of God gets caught up in his wonderful saving purpose. Now, Paul asks, if such good results can come from Israel's unbelief, what on earth could we expect from Israel's full inclusion in the people of God? It must be something even more wondrous than the salvation of the nations. Something Paul describes in verse 15, as life from the dead. Now, it could well be that this is just a figure of speech, an expression Paul's using to describe something astonishing and miraculous and unimaginable. But there's a good case to be made that Paul is speaking quite literally of the final resurrection of the dead. Because once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and once the fullness of the Jews has come in, what is left but the end of history the trumpet of the archangel, and the consummation of the kingdom of God. But let's just hold that thought together for when we put it all together later in the chapter. And let's move on to Paul's famous illustration of the olive tree. Verse 16. If the dough offered as first roots is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, oh, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So Paul visualizes the whole people of God as a single olive tree. This is a common image borrowed from the Old Testament. The root of the tree clearly is Jewish, and Paul's probably referring to the patriarchs. 
God had set aside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the beginning of a holy people, set apart, that's what holy means, for God's worship and purposes. And the whole tree derives its holiness from them, from God's choice of them and his calling and blessing of them. But God, who's the farmer, obviously, has snapped off some of the branches. Some, most perhaps, but not all of the branches. But he has snapped off some. And the divine judgment on unbelieving Israel is that they have been severed from God's holy people. And in their place, God has grafted in a wild olive shoot, the Gentiles. And now this is the opposite of normal agricultural practice, right? Why would you graft in a branch from a wild olive tree, which was notoriously unfruitful? Paul is actually referencing an ancient technique by which wild shoots were used to rejuvenate an old and withering tree. God, as the cultivator, is using his skill to cause the whole tree to grow and flourish and bear fruit, even if radical surgery is necessary. Now, the point of the illustration, we should not lose sight of, the point is to rebuke the Gentiles who were feeling, they were feeling pretty superior to those Jews who didn't accept Christ. And Paul reminds them and us that we are supported by a Jewish root and we're nourished by it. The church cannot be in a relationship with Israel's God without also being in a relationship with God's Israel. Our forefathers in the faith, whom we celebrate in Hebrews chapter 11, were all Jewish, men and women, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Those are our heroes in the faith. And you and I would not be rejoicing in Christ this afternoon and participating in all the riches of the gospel apart from Israel's witness down the centuries. We owe the Jewish people a huge debt. And would that the church had remembered this. For Christianity's treatment of the Jews, we must confess, has been appalling and shameful. In the Middle Ages, Jews were put in walled ghettos. They were forced to wear special clothing, and they were prevented from entering honorable professions. And sometimes, whole communities were massacred in anti-Semitic pogroms. And it wasn't just the Orthodox and the Catholics. Martin Luther wrote some appalling things about the Jews. And all this hatred was fertile soil for Hitler's final solution, six million Jews in the gas chambers. And one cannot help but wonder how things might have been different had the church taken this chapter to heart and remembered how much God loves the Jews. The irony is that the Gentile Christians in Rome were given into the very same temptation to pride that had doomed Old Testament Israel, boasting that they were the people of God and nothing could destroy them. And Paul warns them that their attitude should be one of fear. But you know that fear is an appropriate attitude for healthy Christians at times. A sober fear of God. That yes, God is kind so long as we continue in God's kindness by faith. But should we begin to indulge in self-congratulation and boasting over others, God also has severity that he will demonstrate by cutting us off. For he does not show partiality. God's mercy is not something to be trifled with. But 
What about those severed Jewish branches? What happens to them? Let's read on in verse 23. Paul writes, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? I don't know too much about grafting, but I know a little something about pruning because when I was growing up, we had this gnarled old tree in our front yard. It might have been a crab apple. It didn't really pr- produce much fruit, but man, it grew a lot of branches. And once a year, my dad would knock on my door with the dreaded words, Bart, I have a little job for you. And the little job involved me underneath the tree, my dad on the ladder, sawing off the branches. And I have to pick up all the branches and pick all the little twigs out of the, out of the grass and bundle them up with a rope and drag them out to the backyard for hours and hours and hours. But the reward was that we would get to throw a match on the gasoline-soaked pile of branches and enjoy a massive column of flame as the branches crackled and burned. You just can't do that when you live in an apartment. (laughs) But notice that while God severs the branches, he does not destroy them. They do not get flung onto the bonfire. God has carefully preserved these branches in order to graft them back in again. And this is something no farmer would ever do. It's like we have to imagine a massive greenhouse with thousands and thousands and thousands of sticks and twigs all in their own little jar of water that God is keeping alive in order to graft back into his olive tree. Why is God saving them? Because he has a purpose for them, to bring them back into the people of God. And hey, if we, the wild branches, these strange Gentiles could be grafted in, why not the natural branches, the descendants of Abraham? So, the story of the olive tree tells us there is a single people of God, Jew and Gentile, rooted in Old Testament Israel. And it allows us to dispense with two theological errors. One is replacement theology, the idea that, well, God's just given up on Israel, flung them in the dustbin, and now he's solely focused on the Gentile church. And it suggests that God has abandoned the Jewish tree, left the stump to rot in the ground, and he's planted a new and separate Gentile tree. But Romans 11 clearly excludes that. In fact, that's the false teaching that Paul is arguing strongly against. That's error number one. But the other error is that God is maintaining two separate covenant peoples. So yes, we Gentiles need to believe in Jesus, but the Jews enjoy their own covenant with God. Has anyone heard this idea? So therefore, there's no reason for us to evangelize Jews. They're doing fine because God has a special track for them, the non-Jesus track. And here again is this mistaken picture of two trees, both of which God might be cultivating, but they're completely separate and completely disconnected. The book of Romans is enough to demolish this two-tree, two-track theology. Keeping the Torah cannot save the Jewish people. They need to believe in Jesus. And that's the only way that Israel can claim the ancient promises that God has given her, by trusting the Messiah God has sent. There is only one way to God for Jew and Gentile alike, and that way is through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is only one tree, and Israel's salvation, like ours, depends on her being grafted back into that olive tree. And now, Paul is ready to reveal how this will happen. 
Let's get to the exciting stuff. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, a mystery in the New Testament is kind of a technical term, and it refers to the plan of God, long hidden, but now revealed. And almost always, when the term mystery is used in Paul's letters, he's talking about the, the surprising inclusion of the Gentiles and the people of God. But here, he's talking, his revelation is about the resulting inclusion of the Jews. That follows on from that. God's judicial hardening of Israel will not be forever. It's temporary, and it will end when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The moment that last elect Gentile puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ, the hearts of Israel will begin to soften by the power of the Holy Spirit. By his divine power, the deliverer of Israel will banish ungodliness, take away the sin of Israel, and remove every obstacle that has kept them outside the kingdom until now. So what Paul is talking about is this great and miraculous ingathering of the Jewish people at the end of history. Now, the expression, all Israel will be saved, all Israel, does not necessarily mean each and every Israelite without exception, but it means more than just a little remnant. Paul is predicting a massive people movement, the nation as a whole turning to Christ as one. Now, humanly speaking, this seems extremely unlikely. And anyone who's witnessed to Jews knows they are, it's a very resistant people. But what seems impossible to man will happen by the miraculous power and grace of God to the amazement and rejoicing of us all. It's going to be awesome. Now, this afternoon, I am offering you no charts, no schedules, and no maps. That would be reckless and foolish of me to do. But I do know from the word of God that God is going to do something unimaginably wondrous for the Jewish people. And we must pray and seek God, remind him of his promises to our Jewish forefathers. So let's sum up with Paul. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. God still loves ethnic Israel for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His choice of Israel to bear his glory among the nations still stands for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, literally, without regret. God is not going to pull that back. God will never, never, never take back what he has promised Israel. For his glory will not allow it to be said that the unfaithfulness of man was able to nullify the faithfulness of God. The steadfast love of the Lord is forever and ever, and his mercies will never cease. And though we abide faithless, God will always be faithful. See, if God was the kind of God who would abandon Israel, 
How on earth could we Gentiles trust him to stay faithful to us? God is not that kind of God. And God's salvation is not based on human will, but on divine election. Not on human works, but divine grace. That is the basis of our firm confidence of a glorious future for Jew and Gentile together alike in God's coming kingdom. So Romans 11 celebrates the wonderful, sovereign mercy of God. As Paul said in chapter 9, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And the circle of God's mercy is not small. There is a wideness in God's mercy. And God intends to lavish it on a countless throng of people, myriads and myriads, the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews. And God intends to manifest his mercy in such a way that both Jew and Gentile know that our inclusion is because of nothing else but the strange and surprising mercy of our God. Has God rejected his people? By no means. History will vindicate the faithfulness of God, and he will fulfill his promise to Abraham and his descendants, that his descendants would be as numberless as the stars of the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And if God seems slow to keep his promise, as some count slowness, it is only that none should perish and all should repent and enjoy the mercy of God. Let me conclude by reading an ancient prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Did you know that of Paul's 100 or so quotations from the Old Testament, 28 are from the book of Isaiah? It's his favorite book, clearly, and there are so many wonderful passages we could choose, but let's finish with God's promise to his people Israel in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.